welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, welcome to the Madden America podcast. Uh, I'm Tim Beck, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Thomas Teo. Uh, Thomas is a professor of psychology in the historical, theoretical, and critical studies uh, of psychology program at York University in Toronto, Canada. Thomas has been active in the advancement of theoretical, critical, and historical psychology throughout his professional career. Uh, this includes more than 200 academic publications and refereed conference presentations. Uh, he takes what he describes as a meta-psychological approach to research, uh, which means that he focuses on the practices of psychologists themselves to highlight hidden assumptions in their discipline and, and hopefully new possibilities for human subjectivity. Uh, recently, he has published on social topics ranging from gender discrimination to migration, racism, and fascism. And so thank you so much for joining me today, Thomas. I've really been looking forward to this opportunity to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so just to get started, I, I notice you're an academic psychologist with, which, with what I would describe as a very unique approach to doing research in psychology, uh, especially compared to other psychologists in North America. Um, and so I'd like to ask you soon to talk about how you would describe this approach and what your main theoretical influences have been. But before we get to that, can you share a little bit about your personal history, uh, maybe before academia? Is there anything you can point to in your life that might have contributed to this unique approach that you take to psychology? I, th I think it has to do with the fact that there was a disappointment and that's sort of say during my student days, uh, a disappointment about the discrepancy between what would be possible in psychology and what is actually done in psychology. Mm -hmm. So I think psychology produces a lot of interesting stuff, but it doesn't fulfill actually the promise that it had, at least in my mind as a student. And so I think this this approach of critical psychology that I have reaches back to that disappointment studying at the University of Vienna, where we were confronted, so to say, with what we would call later an Americanized uh, psychology, not relying anymore on local traditions, an import of, uh, of um, yeah, indeed, sort of American psychology into uh, Austrian psychology, and realizing to a certain degree, to which degree this is very alien to our own experiences, very alien how we should think about psychological uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And so I think later I wrote actually an article about where I talk about the fact that uh, German-speaking psychology has, has an indigenous dimension and American psychology has an indigenous dimension. So there's certain cultural, historical, political, social traditions that have influenced American psychology, the same is true for German psychology. Mm -hmm. But German, German psychology had its strong roots and strong traditions, and we did not pick up on that. Just to give you one example, we didn't pick up, let's say, uh, in the university education on Sigmund Freud. Uh -huh. Freud, of course, is an Austrian, uh, was an Austrian, and was big in Vienna, but in the psychology curriculum, there was not much interest in uh, in psychoanalysis or psychodynamics. And just one example how 
what I mean by strong traditions, but then we learned about peerism, let's say, in social psychology, which was to a certain degree alien, didn't help us actually to understand what's going on in our culture, in our society. The type of research that you do, is this something that's more common in Europe? So do you see it as something that's maybe more different to the way people do psychology in North America, but not so different to the way Europeans practice psychology? I don't think this is the case anymore. I think in, in Germany, it switched. Some people have talked about uh, the success of the Americanization of German psychology in the 1960s and maybe similar in Austria, a similar time. Uh-huh. And so I think if you go back now to Germany, Austria, and you study psychology, it's, it's very much the same thing what you have in the uh, United States or Canada. Uh-huh. So the, 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 the process of the globalization of American psychology, I think, is pretty much finished. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe in the 1980s, when I studied, there were still some remnants. There were some people still challenging, sort of say, what was going on, and to which degree psychology is actually a status quo supporting and not a status quo challenging uh, discipline. And so we were influenced with some of those people in critical psychology, especially German critical psychology, who gave lectures and seminars in Vienna uh, to be, you know, knowledgeable about uh, some of those counter traditions. See, like even now, you're describing your approach to research in terms of critical psychology, which I'm guessing is a term that most people and maybe even some psychologists are not all that familiar with. So I'm wondering, can you explain just what you mean by critical psychology and what it is that you think makes your research unique? That is, of course, a very difficult question to define critical psychology. But I think the way I would define is that critical psychology is about doing justice in and through theory, doing justice with and to groups of people, and uh, doing justice to the reality of society, history, and culture as they constitute subjectivity, but equally the discipline and profession of psychology. So let me explain what I mean. Doing justice in and through theory. So there's some people who have a very strong theoretical interest, and I'm included in this tradition. And so we would be interested, is psychology doing justice to what we would conceive the topics, the problems of psychology, to the subject matter of psychology? Is psychology doing justice in its methodology? Is psychology doing justice in its applied practices? And so we would apply then, you know, would to critique, we try to reconstruct what happened in psychology, would try to develop counter-concepts. Uh, I think what you're more interested in, or what your p- program probably is more interested in, the question about is psychology doing justice with groups of people and to groups of people? So the question, has psychology done justice to women in its past? Has psychology done justice to the poor in its research? Has it done justice to racialized minorities, to people outside of the center? Uh, has it done justice to people with disabilities? Has it done justice to people with physical or mental disabilities, to LGBTQ people? Has it done justice to community problems? So I think that is what I mean by people who focus then the question to which degree has psychology or mainstream psychology or traditional psychology done justice mm-hmm. with groups of people and two groups of people. So, of course, in the critical tradition, you would want that justice is done with people and not against people or about people, but to include people in the theorizing, in the research of psychology. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And that really speaks to something that I think is so powerful about the work that you do. I like this idea of doing justice with um, a group of people. Um, and I think, you know, my sense is oftentimes when people hear this idea of doing justice to something in research, they think, well, are you representing it accurately? Are you portraying it in an objective way? And I really like the way that you you situate objectivity within the set of practices that the psychologists are carrying out. It's not just this, this value-neutral thing that people strive for. And there's this one quote that I found from your work that I really liked. It said that objectivity is not only an epistemic category, it's also a value that guides science. Um, and to me, this really speaks to what you're saying with this idea that, that psychological knowledge is situated within history, culture, society, and in fact, ideology. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can maybe clarify this a little bit more and, and explain how you see psychological knowledge and maybe even science more generally to be related to ideology? First, to your first part of your question, I think I strongly believe that there is an entanglement between epistemology, ontology, and ethics. And use the example of objectivity. So if you think about it, you know, what does objectivity mean? Objectivity means we do justice to an object, but objectivity is also a value, uh, an academic virtue. You have to be objective. You're not objective is like a is like an ethical condemnation. So it's not only an, an, an epistemological category, but also an ethical category. And I think the problem comes exactly from what you mentioned there. The question, well, what do we do justice to? So do we want to do justice to a, to an abstract concept of science? Or do we want to do justice to, uh, to problems or to people? And if you say, well, it has to be justice to people, then you might choose a different methodology. So what, what is the point of having the greatest method, the greatest instrument, if it doesn't do justice to the problem or it doesn't do justice to people? So this is sort of, I would reconsider this entanglement between ethics and uh, epistemology. It reminds me of other parts of your research that I've looked at where it seems like you draw, you draw often on post-colonial researchers who write about concepts like epistemic violence and epistemological violence. Uh, it seems like you describe these uh, as certain mechanisms of othering that uh, operate within academic psychology where a certain group of individuals, sometimes implicitly, is constructed in an inferior way to other groups. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can maybe clarify this point as well. Um, just talk a little bit to how, just in the way that a group of people are represented, how that can actually constitute a form of violence that's committed against them. Well, when I developed the concept of epistemological violence, I had a very specific dimension of scientific research in mind, namely the interpretation of data. So that was basically the original in, uh, uh, intent of this concept. And as you said, post-colonial researchers such as Spivak had the idea that any kind of written text or spoken text about, let's say, Indian culture is a form of epistemic violence. And I ask myself, does this work in psychology? And I would say, yeah, it works in psychology, but it's not precise enough. It's not concise enough. And so I try to argue, also trying to convince mainstream psychologists that, that uh, epistemological violence is located in the interpretation of uh, data. So not only, I didn't want to locate it uh, in the realm of what kind of questions are asked, what kind of methodology is used, 
uh, what kind of applications are suggested, all of that, you can have epistemological violence as well. I very clearly wanted to have it in, in, the, in the scientific domain, meaning inter-interpretation of data where traditional epistemologists or methodologists say, well, there's a problem between uh, what you receive as data and the interpretation of data. So my point was epistemological violence is, is committed when you interpret empirical research that in a way that implicitly or explicitly construct the other as inferior or problematic, despite the fact that you have alternative, equally viable interpretations based on the data. So think about a finding of difference. You have two groups, you find a difference, and then you say it's in the nature of A, of group A, to be less intelligent. Uh, and that would be for me, so to say, a form of epistemological violence because the, the finding of difference itself does not determine that type of interpretation. <laughs> or if you, let's, if you want to be more concrete, let's say you find differences. So you find that there's fewer women at uh, Ivy League universities uh, than men, uh, that's an empirical finding, and then you interpret and say, well, women are less intelligent. That would be a form of epistemic, epistemological violence for me, because the finding of difference does not necessitate that type of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do when I, talk, when I talk about epistemological violence. But I think coming to your question, one can also move it back to, it's not only, it's not only in the in the, in the domain of interpretation of data, it's also in the domain of what kind of questions are asked and also what kind of methodological approach I actually have, the methodology itself where you can produce uh, uh, forms of violence. This is not what I did in my article, but if you have, for, let's say, a, a deficit model, uh, when, you, when, you, when you're only interested in differences and you interpret or, or you're interested in interpreting differences as deficit, then you obviously may commit a form of epistemological violence because then, and I know this, I read a little bit up on uh, disability uh, studies. If you see the a person with disability only as deficient, then I think you commit a form of epistemological violence as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you could even, you could go further and say the research relationship, who has primacy in the research relationship? So it can be the researcher or it can be the researched. Mm -hmm. And if I say I have primacy, you know, my interests are the most important because I can make a career in academia, I can make money, I can get grants. Uh, and so if I do research uh, about or with people, it's only about me as, as the primacy. And I set the agenda, I set the questions, I set the mm -hmm. methods. Then obviously you could say that is also, uh, uh, that is also a problem that is inherent in traditional psychological methodology. Mm -hmm. And you have to move outside of traditional psychological methodology in order to find alternatives to that mindset where actually primacy belongs to the research, mm -hmm. such as in participatory action research, to use only one example in terms of methodology. So my point is, you could also make the argument that, uh, that injustices, forms of violence can happen not only in the interpretation of empirical research, but even in the methodologies that are chosen themselves. So yeah. you would choose as a critical psychologist, I guess, a method that is with and for people, uh, not about and to people. I really like the way that you explain this. And to me, this just points to so many important issues about how research is conducted in psychology. And I know for someone who might not do research for a living, it might not be clear how many different steps of the process there are. 
And I like how you point out, like within each step of the process, there are these decisions that have to be made um, that aren't necessarily guided by research, right? Like these are sort of subjective decisions that need to be made by researchers. That, that include things like whose interests are being served in the, at this particular moment, how are my colleagues going to perceive my work, um, what kind of credit will I get for this, will this, will this help me get tenure at some point down the line. Um, and all of these decisions could end up having an impact on the people who are being researched later on, but these are often not accounted for in the research process, right? Like in the methods section, very seldomly does a researcher talk about how doing this research might actually help them get tenure later on, but that could be an important point that that's made at some point. Um, so yeah, I think that really gives me a lot to think about there. No, it's you know some people have called it also the the, the practice of research have called it drive by research or fly in research. So think about Canada and Inuit communities, and what they did with any Inuit communities, especially psychologists, was. Okay, I have an interesting uh, uh, question, I have an interesting hypothesis, I have an interesting instrument. Let's just go up to Inuit communities, fly in, give them a question, and have them fill it out and fly home uh, back to the city, into my lab, to my office, and then I do a publication based on that. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't serve the Inuit community at all. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I mean, there will be primacy of researcher. Uh, would not do justice actually to Inuit communities. And then somebody publishes a, a research saying, Inuit and then again, difference, whatever, Inuit communities have a higher on X than uh, urban communities or something. Mm -hmm. That doesn't do anything for, for, for that community. So, uh, uh, and the way uh, what is rewarded, so to say, in the, as you pointed out, in the, in the professional career is the quantity of publications. And it's actually very difficult to do research with Inuit communities that takes time. Uh, you need to make contacts, you have to get accepted. And that might take a very, very long period of time. That is a process that is not rewarded. So it's much, what is rewarded is uh, the quantity of publications. And so drive-by research is, I think, a necessary outcome or fly-in research is a necessary outcome of the existing practices uh, uh, in the discipline of psychology as well as in other disciplines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think this connects to something you talk a lot about in terms of neoliberalism as this sort of overarching ideology that a lot of research operates with it. And I, I'd like to ask you about that as well, but before we lose the, the topic we were just on, this idea of epistemic violence reminds me to some extent of the way that, that psychiatric diagnoses are supposed to serve as these clinical tools that that clinicians and psychiatrists use to help them make decisions and do their work. But often it seems like these concepts get pushed beyond that and they get used either as research constructs to group individuals in particular ways, or sometimes they're actually uh, service users are encouraged to understand themselves through these concepts and they become something like identities for them. Um, would you say that, that this process, does this connect in some way to the, to the sense of epistemic violence that that you're describing, or is this different in any way? I would not necessarily apply the term epistemic violence, but I would apply the term of power, the power mm -hmm. of psychology. And critical psychologists are interested in understanding power structures, to which degree you know, individual subjectivity is connected to history, culture, and society, to which the discipline and practice of psychology is connected to history, culture, and society. And we call that the psycholo psychologization 
of subjectivity. So the reality, as you said, or looping effects, as Ian Hawking has called it, the fact that somebody develops a category and we start to understand ourselves through those categories is actually the power, and to a certain degree, the success, quotation mark, of psychology, that people understand themselves more and more through those categories. And it's, it's a process of power in the meaning of Foucault, that's also a form of subjectification. So I understand myself through those uh, categories and don't use other concepts anymore in, in order to understand psychosocial processes. Mm -hmm. So for example, when, when uh, former President Obama talks about an empathy deficit in American uh, society, he applies a psychological category to make sense what's going on in American society. But uh, it doesn't, well, one could talk sort of about, about the problems in American society in terms of uh, inequality, in terms of capitalism, in terms of uh, poverty rates, increasing inequality, neoliberalism, as you pointed out, and in terms of social, economic, political categories. Uh, but we like to use, and this is the process of psychologization, more and more psychological categories. And I think the, the, the psychiatric categories, of course, are very popular because people will begin to uh, uh, to understand themselves through those uh, categories. Mm -hmm. And we have to analyze that process of, uh, of uh, power that is uh, uh, expressed in, in psychology and psychiatry and the side disciplines. And so let me just add something, you know, what I just thought about. I'm not sure if you know the work by Lisa Cosgrove. Lisa Cosgrove works a lot on financial conflicts of interest in psychiatry, and she showed empirically uh, the conflicts, the financial conflicts of interest that people, uh, that uh, DSM panel members have. Let's say we take scientific criteria, scientific values such as transparency seriously. Well, why don't people in their practice or in their research uh, disclose, so to say, that there was uh, a certain financial conflict of interest found when they dealt with this category? So I'm just doing this hypothetical. Of course, nobody would do that. But imagine a practitioner saying, I use category X, and uh, it has been pointed out in the scientific literature that this category uh, is uh, afflicted with a high level of financial conflicts of interest. I still use this category, but I want to warn you, there's a large financial conflicts of interest. That would be complete transparency if we take those cr scientific criteria seriously. Uh, but that is, of course, not done uh, because it would undermine, so to say, indeed, the neoliberal practice of, of psychology where, and this, I think you hinted at that, uh, which is the question about what I have studied or what I've uh, written about epistemic modesty and ep epistemic grandiosity. Ep you know, epistemic modesty is the case that, you know, knowledge has become so com complex. There's so much recognition to which degree historical, cultural, and personal factors affect uh, knowledge and limit knowledge. Even a discipline such in psychology of millions of publications now, this is only mostly empirical publications. So the logical consequence will be, or the logical outcome will be that we are all epistemo epistemologically modest. But what we observe is the opposite, epistemic grandiosity and people who believe they can assume a point from nowhere there, that they that I'm objective, other people are subjective. Uh, my knowledge is, is, is true and uh, don't 
endorser the idea that knowledge is always fragile. And the question is, why do we have that? Why is it that, that we have a, a logical outcome that would, that would recommend epistemic modesty, but we have epistemic grandiosity? And this brings us back, I think, to neoliberalism, uh, that uh, in neoliberalism, the academics as well, are required to market, sell their products, their knowledge, their articles, their books, their chapters. Also in terms of tenure and promotion uh, procedures, uh, again, the quantity of uh, publications, the amount of money that you could attract, all of those neoliberal factors play a role in success in academia. And so it would be difficult to go on TV uh, one radio and say, well, you know, actually, I, we don't know so much about those things. It's actually a very complex issue rather than saying, well, I'm an expert. I'm going to tell you how it is. So I think that is one dimension, neoliberal dimension, uh, why people endorse more epistemic grandiosity over mm -hmm. epistemic uh, modesty. The other one is, of course, that we encounter now lots of people who pretend to be knowledgeable, uh, to know how things operate even if they don't actually have this knowledge. And so you have, an, you have then, and that is sort of the competition of um, uh, academic and scientific knowledge, will, which everyday knowledge, where you have then to pretend uh, to know more than you actually know, that knowledge is less fragile than it actually is, uh, because you have to operate, let's say, against people who uh, trade in conspiracy theories. And so then the scientist is put into the same level and has to pretend that knowledge is actually less fragile than it actually is. Mm -hmm. So I think these are some of the dimensions I think that that are interesting to me in this debate as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is such an interesting concept. I've never heard anyone else propose it before that, you know, well, on the one hand, of course, any researcher is re required to reveal direct financial contributions that they're getting in order to, to fund the research that they're, they're currently engaged in. Um, but I think what, you, what you're suggesting is that we could even take that, that requirement a step further to an additional level of transparency, an additional level of um, maybe you know, even honesty and say that, well, a lot of the concepts that are being used are also produced through research that's funded by particular organizations. And I think you point to another issue that I think so makes this even more complicated, this issue of, of living in this post-truth reality or, or thinking of this idea of alternative facts where I think people are pushing back against scientific research much more than they ever have before. Um, and so I think researchers probably feel like they have to walk a fine line between being able to share information that's useful and based in scientific research um, while also not discrediting and, and being honest about how they're doing that without discrediting the very methods that they're using to produce that. Um, and so I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that, but I, I, I noticed you are using this term neoliberalism to talk about mm -hmm. this. And I know this is also a term that seems sometimes gets thrown around a lot and used in, in, in different sorts of ways. So I was wondering, since you use that term in your research, could you define how you use it, how you understand that term and, and, and how you think it's relevant to some of the, the, the issues that we're talking about right now? I think it's basically about the marketization of common goods. And Political theorists and economic theorists have talked a lot about uh, neoliberalism, but what I'm interested in is what does this mean for subjectivity? 
So as a psychologist, I, 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 I read up some of this literature from political theorists and economic theorists. David Harvey would be one example, but I'm much more interested sort of say, what does this do to subjectivity? What kinds of things have we, can we observe when it comes to neoliberal uh, subjectivity? I think that what, what I've noticed, and I think other people have noticed as well, is that forms of subjectivity, forms of life, have been reduced more and more into a neoliberal form of subjectivity or neoliberal form of life. So this seems kind of contradictory. So we experience, so there seems to be more and more forms of life, more and more forms of subjectivity, while at the same time, they are reduced to a neoliberal form of subjectivity. Let me explain what I mean by that. So if you go back to the 1920s, uh, uh, there was a German philosopher called uh, Spranger, psychologist, educational theorist, who described, I mean, criticized this as well, he described six forms of life. He called them theoretical, economic, aesthetic, social, political, and religious forms of life. So the idea that people assume somebody might become a business person, somebody might become an academic, somebody might become a politician or an artist or just engage, so to say, with friends and live a social life. So, and we can discuss whether this is sufficient, whether this is applies to only upper classes and so forth, all that we can do. But what we can find now is that these six forms of life that he describes, according to my theorizing, is reduced to a ne neoliberal form of subjectivity, ne namely to an entrepreneurial form of life. So if you want to be, uh, uh, if you want to assume a theoretical form of life, we talked about academia, if you want to become an academic, you have to also have an you also have to have an entrepreneurial form of subjectivity. If you want to become an artist, you also have to have an entrepreneurial form of life. If you want to become uh, even a, you know a religious leader, you have to endorse entrepreneurial form of life. So this, uh, as a politician, so closely linked to an entrepreneurial form of life. So this is what I mean. How despite the expansion of seemingly forms of life, you have you still uh, so to say, molded into an entrepreneurial, neoliberal form of subjectivity. And a form of subjectivity, subjectivity, I mean that society or culture produces certain molds that we have to suit ourselves into. So I'm not saying society forces you or society determines you. What is interesting in terms of subjectivity is that we ourselves suit ourselves into those forms of life. So I noticed that myself, let's say as an academic, because those neoliberal criteria such as citations, impact of journals have become important, I suddenly find myself sort of looking at citations that I have. Never used to do that, but suddenly because it has become an important criteria for evaluation in the tenure and promotion process in the academic life, suddenly you look at how, you know, how many citations do you have. And that nobody forces me to do that. I suture myself actively into those forms of academic life. So this, this is what I mean by that, that it's not society forces or determines you to do things. In order to, in order to live in a society, you suture yourself into some of those uh, forms of life. And the question, of course, for me is, can you resist them? Can you expand them? Can you change them? And that is, of course, very difficult to change forms of life. But people try to do it. And I think in critical psychology, we have to have the duty actually to resist them 
in trying to find different forms of subjectivity. Although this is very difficult because our individual subjectivity is connected with uh, society, history, culture. Mm -hmm. I cannot catapult myself out how society would look like in 500 years. I cannot do that. I can do it backwards. So it is actually difficult to, to resist those forms. I try to do it a little bit uh, where possible by trying not to talk, not to converse, not to present, not to write, not to comment in the way it is required, let's say, from, for an academic. Uh, although, as I said, it is actually very difficult uh, because you have been socialized for years into that uh, academic form of life and also into that entrepreneurial form of, uh, of life. And my question is, of course, what does this mean as a psychologist? What does this mean for thinking? What does this mean for feeling? What does this mean for agency? What does this mean for motivation? Yeah, I think that's to me really fascinating. And there's at least two different directions where I can see that going. Like the one hand to go back to what you were saying about um, being honest and in a sense modest about the ways in which the concepts that you're using might have been constructed through various funding streams and, and, and what implications that could have um, for your own research. Like to me, that that can only happen if you're able to reflect on your own and, and participate reflexively in your own process. And, and, and you, have a, you have a vocabulary to talk about and a set of ideas to use to think about these concepts. And, and it strikes me that a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists, they're not trained in the humanities or they're not trained in other social sciences where they, like sociology, where they might be given a framework to think about these sort of issues. So on, on the one hand, do you, do you see this as sort of part of a deficiency with the way psychologists are trained and that they're trained in very specialized ways and they don't have the tools? Uh, or do you think that it even goes, goes beyond that? No, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. That's why we have promoted what we call the psychological humanities. Uh -huh. So the idea that we can learn about the psychological from, the, from history, from philosophy, from social theory, from political theory, economic theory. And so, you know, if that's, that's um, how do we do justice, coming back to this question, to the topic of psychology? Well, in, if we want to do justice to the top, to psychological, let's say, psychological processes, psychological topics, you need to include the humanities. And that is sort of say, part of the project that uh, I'm also promoting, the psychological humanities. And if you want to move beyond you know, critique and reconstruction, you have to, as you said, develop counter-concepts. And that's also what I'm trying to do, develop counter-concepts, a vocabulary, a language, which you can address things that are not addressed anymore in psychology. Mm -hmm. So epistemological violence is just one of those examples mm -hmm. that how we can address things that go on in, in the discipline in order, in order to give it a name, but also in order to give people who are constructed in epistemologically violent way, a tool to label that epistemologically violent. So mm -hmm. imagine uh, communities or groups of people that historically have been constructed or racialized as inferior. And then there's, there's scientific races coming out with large empirical studies. What do those people from the community have to go back and, and think about you know, methodology and statistics? Or can they just say, well, what you're doing is epistemologically violent because what you what, how you interpret what you find is actually is not determined by what you find. You add something to uh, your findings. You, you're part of a tradition, and what you do is epistemological. And so this is also 
a concept with people, trying to develop concepts for people, with people, uh, and uh, specifically counter-concepts. Psychological humanities would be another counter-concept, what I just referred to, mm -hmm. or epistemic modesty, or Michel Fine, what Michel Fine called circuits of dispossession, the idea that we should not just do only variable research, but we should look at circuits of dispossession when we do research. So mm -hmm. systems of dispossession, not just saying, oh, how come, you know, what, in psych what do they do in psychology? They look at variable dropout rates of certain ethnic groups in schools. Okay, this is the variable. Let's look at another psychological variable, resilience, or any other psychological variable that we have available. And then look, let's look how one variable relates to another variable. This doesn't actually tell us how circuits of dispossession, systems of dispossession actually work. They lead actually certain groups to drop out, let's say, from school. And this is what I mean by connecting individual subjectivity to what I call intersubjectivity, but also to what I call socio-subjectivity. So the nexus of uh, one, an individual subjectivity with relations, but also with society, history, and culture. Mm -hmm. and if we do that, then we can have actually a better understanding, I believe, of psychological uh, topics. Yeah, yeah. But what, what I really like about what you're saying and and the way that you talk about neoliberalism in much of your research is that you you do provide for these very concrete ways in which neoliberalism shapes research and practices in psychology and psychiatry. Um, on these really different levels. So yeah, I like how on the one hand, we're talking about how, well, it shapes the ways that psychologists and psychiatrists think of themselves as professionals and the, the ways that they get reimbursed for the types of work that they do. But on the other hand, it actually shapes the way that they perceive and they think about their work. And it, it, it changes the way that they perceive who it is that they're studying or who it is that they're working. And so I think about how in psychiatry, we're using the the, the example of diagnoses before, like a diagnosis in a general sense should just help uh, clinicians think about what's the best services to provide to this individual. But it goes beyond that so often into, into being used to think about, well, what's the biology of this person? What could be unique about these pers this person's genetics that could be influencing them? And of course, there's very little scientific research to conclude that well, this particular diagnosis has these very specific genes connected to them. And yet this way of thinking and this way of mm -hmm. speaking, it's so commonplace throughout the research. And I, exactly. And I would ask what you just pointed out, to which degree is the biomedical model doing justice to individual suffering? To which degree is a psychosocial model doing justice to individual suffering? And as you said, if you have only one model, a biomedical model, you, you leave out all the findings actually that we have about to which degree mental health is actually connected, let's say, to inequality. So the fact that increasing inequality produces increases uh, or increased mental health problems is then not addressed. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, so to say, if you want to do justice to mental health problems, you have to look at those elements as well. So on, on, the, on, on the political economic level, but of course, in the United States, all an institutional level. In Canada, of course, we have so to say a national health care, provincial health care system, uh, to which degree institutions, uh, uh, organizations, but uh, in a broader sense, uh, political economy contribute to mental health problems. Uh, Wilkinson, of course, uh, talks about uh, that 
increasing inequality causes increases in mental health problems. And there are epidemiologists of different concept of causality. We don't have to go into different you know, conceptualizations of causality. But if this is the case, well, why not tackle increasing wealth and income inequality? I mean, that is indeed my question. And if you just focus on, on, indivi on the individual, on biology, I believe you're not doing justice, actually, to, uh, to the psychological reality of people. Yeah, that's the solutions that are offered are defined by the ways that the problems are talked about at the yeah. beginning, right? So if you define the problem in these very narrow biomedical ways, it doesn't really op afford the opportunity to talk about solutions in many other ways, right? So it's, it's so many different levels. And this reminds me another of another concept that you talk about that you've written about recently, uh, this concept of subhumanism. And I, I really like the way that you connect this to topics of migration. And you, you talk about how this concept of subhumanism serves to justify racist or otherwise fascist public policies. Um, and so I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit about, about what you mean by this term subhumanism and, and why you see it as being so important to what's going on in the world today? Well, I've this th I'm working actually also on fascist subjectivity. And my argument is that fascist subjectivity is a socio-relational ontology. So I, I differentiate it from fascist politics. Again, so to say, uh, there's lots of work on what constitutes fascist politics. And my question is, what constitutes fascist subjectivity? And my argument is, when you talk about fascist subjectivity, you cannot only do it through processes. You have to look at content. So what is actually the content of fascist subjectivity? In my argument, it's a socio-relational ontology, meaning there is not enough to go around for all human beings, and wealth, in a broad sense, should not include the other. Who is the other? The other is the racialized other, or the other is the subhumanized other. The other can be the close other, the, the people who live among us, uh, poor people, people with disabilities, LGBTQ people, so the close other in our society and the distant other people outside of our country living in foreign countries. And so my point is that, that you, in, in a fascist subjectivity, you have capitalist political economic thinking and are doing combined with racism and or subhumanism. So think about German fascism. So they wanted to exclude uh, the Jew. They wanted to exclude the communists, they wanted to exclude the gypsies, uh, the gays, the lesbians, uh, uh, and of course, so does the uh, outside of the country, also other uh, people. But not everybody could be racialized. So the Jew could be racialized and subhumanized. But the Germans, the German fascists were also, as you know, promoting uh, a, what is called the T for Euthanasia program, which led to the killing of people with mental or physical disabilities. And the German person with a disability could not be racialized, but they could be subhumanized. So they were below the standards of the human. So when I talk about uh, the subhuman, I use two sources or two large sources. One is an American source, one is a German source. The American source is Stoddard, wrote a book in 1922, which he called The, the Revolt Against Civilization, The Menace of the Underman. Underman is what I call subhuman. And what he talks when he talks about the underman, he, he talks about a person who measures under the standards of capacity and adaptability imposed by the social order. 
So what did he mean by those? Uh, whom did he mean? Yes, he meant clearly non-European races, mongrelized populations, but also primitives, degenerates, lower classes, the proletariat, Bolsheviks, people who show chaotic, disorderly, substandard, deviant behaviors. I think that leads, leads back to what your question is, actually. Who could be constructed as a subhuman? Well, the communist, it could be the Bolshevik could be constructed as a subhuman, but also the person with mental disabilities, physical disabilities, because they are below the standards of uh, capacity imposed by social order, according to Stora. The second source that I'm using is the German source, which is an educational manual by the SS, and it's called the subhuman. And what was so fascinating for me in this manual was that it usually, it, you know, racism often works with tables and figures and numbers and statistics. It's what we call scientific racism. This goes back to the 18th century, facial angle, measuring of skulls, skull volumes, all of that stuff. That was scientific work. Subhumanism works only with images. You can see who is a subhuman. You don't need a scientific definition. You can see the subhuman. The person who runs over the board is a subhuman. The person who doesn't cross the border in an orderly way, but goes into the desert, comes from Mexico to the United States, that's a subhuman. The person who runs with a child over the border, that's a subhuman. And so subhuman is, a, is, a, is an ontology that operates with images or imaginations. We imagine how the, how the migrant comes to Canada or the United States. Subhumanism is much more malleable than racism. Everybody could become a subhuman under the right circumstances. Think about circumstances. Well, if you have to flee your country, well, very quickly, quickly you could become actually a subhuman, but putting you into circumstances where you cannot act in a standard way anymore. If you're forced to run, if you're forced not to change your clothes, if you're forced uh, 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 to do certain things, if you're forced to sleep on the floor, if you're put into cages, well, then you're going to you know, develop certain behaviors that make you then, you, you, you're dehumanized and then you become a subhuman. Mm -hmm. Subhumanism has an immediate action imperative. So versus, you know, racialized people, okay, there's a long-term action imperative. Yes, uh, they shouldn't do this, they shouldn't do that, they cannot go to our schools. But if you're subhuman, if you're a parasite, if you're a cockroach, meaning a subhuman, then we immediately have to do something with you. As an immediate action imperative. So you, you, uh, if you're subhuman, we're not going to let you into our country anymore. We're going to put you immediately into cages. Uh, we're not going to give you food anymore. We're not going to give you toothbrushes. Uh, has an immediate action imperative. That is so interesting about the concept of the subhumanism to me. Mm -hmm. That you, you need not only a category of racism. Some people follow, can be subsumed under racialized categories. Indeed, the Nazis considered people with mental or physical disabilities, subhuman. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have clearly, uh, they're advertised it in their magazines. Uh, I remember one of those cover pages on a magazine where they basically argue, they showed a picture of, uh, uh, of a person with dis mental disabilities uh, and they make the argument, uh, uh, it costs so and so much money to take care of this person. And then this is also your money. Mm -hmm. Uh, so financial, again, sort of say, uh, a financial dimension to, to subhumanism, well, that's why we should get rid of subhumans. That's why we should actually exterminate, exterminate uh, subhumans. Yeah.
this is such a great thread that connects so much of what we've already talked about. I really like this distinction between subhumanism as this impulse that requires this immediate action that operates on the level of what you say is fascist subjectivity. The distinction between that and certain forms of scientific racism and fascist public policy that often then end up getting constructed to to maybe um, a, a sort of a defense mechanism to protect that impulse of of subhumanism that happens initially. And so, like to me, like that just ties so many important threads together with what you're saying. Yeah, and and also I think that that you know if you look at the broader culture, even uh, there, there is an increasing I think division of uh, in in visual media uh, between humans and subhumans. I mean, as you know, zombie movies, zombie shows are very popular. Mm-hmm. Walking Dead and spin-offs they have very very popular. What is a zombie? Zombie is literally a subhuman. It doesn't exist, but it's literally subhuman. Meaning, you can you can do anything with a zombie you want to do because they are threatening us. Mm-hmm. They're taking away our way of being, our way of life. They're taking away our wealth. Mm-hmm. I, I can maim them, I can cut the heads off, I can stab them, I can exterminate them. It's not only what I can do, it's even my duty to do this. Right. And so I think in our broader culture, we've adopted again to the, I'm not saying some movies are responsible for that, but in our broader culture, there is sort of say this ontology uh, that, you know, there are humans and there are subhumans and, uh, and it prepares us, I think, to accept that we construct again certain people as subhumans. And I, I as you said, I, I've it made the point that migrants are constructed as subhumans. So we can do the things we could never imagine doing to Canadian citizens or American citizens. And uh, it has an action imperative. And it finds actually uh, support among a substantial, hopefully not majority yet uh, in, a, in a population, but substantive, substantial amounts of people supporting actions against uh, migrants. Mm-hmm. And the question is, which is, of course, more relevant uh, to your um, uh, uh, interests, to which degree are, are people with mental uh, disabilities made into subhumans as well? And I haven't studied that as much as I should, but you know there might be certain tendency where this is occurring, especially as people have pointed out when there's a violent act occurring, and people have pointed out there's obviously uh, much lower uh, amounts of violent acts by people with mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. But once it occurs, the, the degree to which this sort of say is is then reconstructed as a as a as, as a subhuman person to which we can do whatever we want to do. But I don't know, to be honest, enough about that area mm-hmm. to make an informed judgment. Yeah, I think it speaks to this idea we were talking about before of epistemic violence so well, and particularly at the point at which interpretation of the data occurs. So it reminds me of the point you were making where you were giving an example where, okay, you you collect data that show differences between these two groups of people. Well, differences are one thing, but then to go and take that a step further and say that one of those set of differences is a result of this person missing something, like that they're missing something that other humans tend to have. And I think of like the autism empathy debate where people uh, who are on the autism spectrum are talked about as, as not having empathy or lacking empathy. And then oftentimes empathy is talked about as this essential human trait. And so even if it's not stated explicitly, the inference is that people on the spectrum are missing something that's essentially human. And mm-hmm. this is called, this is talked about as sort of a call to action. You know, we need to, we need to help these people because they're missing something that everyone else 
takes for granted. Um, but what you're suggesting is that that's that's taking this extra step that's actually doing more harm to this group or in, brings to the potential for violence against this group um, in a way that whether or not the, the um, researchers are aware of it themselves, you're saying they should be more aware of it and they can be more aware, but there are ways of accounting for that. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe we could take a step back and just um, kind of reflect a little bit on and what you see as maybe the approach moving forward. Like, what, what would you like to see like differently? And you've talked a little bit about this idea of epistemic modesty, um, and I think that would be a great start. But um, I mean, could you give maybe an example of how you see this concept of ep- epistemic modesty as being important to psychiatry? Like, how could you see maybe psychiatry or mental health differently through this concept of epistemic modesty? Well, I think it would change the discipline, and it's it's very difficult for the side discipline for for some of the reasons that I mentioned. But there's also the internal reasons, such as the lower status of psychology, the lower status of psychiatry in the medical disciplines, and for that reason, epistemic modesty is actually a very very difficult virtue, I guess, to embody. But it would look differently if this is uh, done. I think the, exactly the way it is done. Uh, I'm not sure. It's it's probably a slow process. It's 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 the question to which degree this is even possible, or is it just counterfactual as a reflexive tool, as a reflexive concept for people who have who have some awareness, I guess, about these problems. But I, I don't encounter it so often, to be honest. Uh, epistemic modesty, and uh, uh, speaking not for psychiatry but for psychology. You, you find the opposite trend. The psychology, as you know, psychology tries to sell itself as a high, as a science. This is what I call hyperscience. So we have all these scientific tools, all these scientific methodologies in order to hide that we are not just a natural science, but that we are also sort of say a cultural, historical, and uh, a social science. And hiding that, we develop all these apparatus and technologies of science which are not always doing justice to human problems or to human uh, topics. And now to ask them to be more modest about claims about uh, the scientific status of psychology, uh, talking about what we said before about the role of culture, history, and society in psychiatric and psychological knowledge, the role of pharmaceutical interests in psychiatric knowledge, all of those things would not sort of say abandon uh, a psychiatric knowledge, but would relativize psycho- psycho- uh, psychiatric and psychological knowledge, contextualize it. That is very, very difficult, I think, to do in, in the end. So I'm not mm. exactly sure yeah. how we can go about it. I'm still trying to put it out and, and even sort of say, yes, it has some, it has some, it has some impact to use this terminology. You know, when I talk about epistemological violence, it had some impact, but I don't think it is a broad concept that will go into an introductory textbook of psychology. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. it has not that impact of reaching a mainstream, a broad mainstream uh, audience. It might mm-hmm. go, go into a textbook of theoretical psychology or even history of psychology, uh, but doesn't sort of reach, I think, uh, 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 um, a broad traditional mainstream audience. And that is the reality which does not prevent me from doing what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, it reminds me of another thing that you've talked about in this. Uh, I really like in your work the way that you talk about the concept of agency 
Uh, and you, you talk about agency, not necessarily as this individual trait that someone can express um, or act on on their own, but almost as a form of collective action um, that can have the power to change social and economic realities for people. Um, and I, this is something that I've seen happen within the mental health community with sort of these peer support groups or peer-to-peer movements forming where people who have gone through the mental health service uh, on some level, they instead of continuing to see a professional or maybe in addition to it, they they support each other. They form communities outside of that. And they also you know fight against some of the injustices that they feel like they've experienced. Um, so do you see that as as something that that's a potential moving forward? And is this anything that you've encountered in your research, like how this form of collective agency is changing either psychology or, or mental health contexts in that way? Yeah, I think there's, there's several dimensions. Let me discuss a few dimensions of, of that concept. So when, when we are confronted with the questions as individuals, what should I do? And I think from, from a critical tradition aware of the psychological humanities, you have at least and just simplified free answers to these questions. I can I can say what should I do? I can do it instrumentally. So cost-benefit analysis instrumentally. Uh, I can do it ethically, meaning you know what do I conceive of as the meaning of life? What do I conceive of as what does mean make a good psychologist? This type of answers. And I can do it morally in the sense of what one ought to do. If I find, let's say I find a purse on the street, uh, what should I do? If I say instrumentally, well, I keep the money that's, I just found it, that would be an instrumental answer. Ethical answer was, I'm an honest person. That's not what I uh, conceive of myself. That's why I turn in this uh, wallet. Or in a moral sense, what ought one to do? So is there a generalizable principle? Should one return uh, wallets one finds on the streets? Somebody might argue, one could develop this. A generalizable answer. The questions, what should I do, can be answered instrumentally, ethically, or morally. And the problem is that under neoliberalism, agency has been reduced to instrumental answers. Everything is, is supposed to be answered in terms of cost-benefit analysis. What do you study? Cost-benefit. Who is my partner? Cost-benefit. Uh, what should I do? Cost-benefit. And this is, again, so to say, the colonization of this complex question into instrumental rationality. And what is a counter-concept? Well, the counter-concept is indeed, well, let's answer it ethically and morally, but also let's, let's move away from what should I do to what should we do. And if I move from what should I do to what should we do, then I have completely different possibilities. And uh, I might not be trapped anymore in this purely individualistic mindset that agency is where agency actually my agency actually restricts me. So should I should I personally have the best healthcare, or would it be better so as a collectively to fight for collective uh, healthcare? Uh, and if if yes, if I answered instrumentally for myself, then I might get some cost benefit individual advantage, but at the same time, I actually restrict my options in other domains as well. The, the point is, if we move from I to we, we open up new possibilities of agency on the political level, but also on the mental health level. And I, I think you mentioned 
what comes to mind for me is the Hearing Voices Project. Mm -hmm. And the Hearing Voices Project is, is, of course, let's move away from a purely individualistic treatment of hearing voices to a more collective approach where we talk in groups about sort of the hearing voices and where we try actually to manage our voices and not just get rid of, get rid of our voices. And that would be for me an example of collective agency. And I think the same thing is when people apply participatory action research. It's not only, so, you know, how can I get rid of my personal experiences of racism, but how do we install circumstances under which racist expressions become less likely and more difficult? So if we try to get rid of um, stop and frisk policies as a collective, then it also benefits me as an individual, of course. Mm -hmm. And this is what I mean by collective agency. It also benefits me as an individual. And this is, of course, very, very difficult to think in those terms because the process of neoliberalization is also a process of individualization, mm -hmm. an increased focus on individuals and families, actually. So everything is in my family, everything is what concerns me, what concerns me or my family. If this is the only focus, we lose actually the perspective of community, collective society, culture, and history, and makes it more difficult actually to advance real solutions. I think this is the case, that it's more difficult to advance uh, solutions that benefit uh, large segments of the population versus just me and my family. Yeah, it's a very good point. I really like the way that you connected this idea of individualizing the problem to neoliberalism, but also showing how that closes us off from certain solutions that throughout history, groups have taken it upon themselves to sort of fight back against these systems of injustices. But if we're only thinking of problems as individual problems that can actually keep individuals from forming those connections and uh, kind of blinders that keep people from seeing how other people experience the same problems as them, and it's not just their own. So yeah, thank yeah. you very much for summarizing all of that. So I just really have one other thing that I'd like to ask you about. And so I'm curious if you uh, have anything that you're currently working on, or is there anything that you're planning, any projects that you're planning for the future that you'd like to share a little bit of information about? Well, I'm very interested in the concept of diability. And this relates, of course, to fascist subjectivity. It also uh, relates back to subhumanism, the question who, who is diable in this society. And by diable, I mean uh, not only disposable. If you're diable, you don't need a replacement anymore. Disposable, you can have replacement. Um, of course, there's a certain overlap between diable and disposable. But my question is, who is diable in our uh, culture, which relates back to migration, to the pandemic, uh, to fascism, to increasing fascist subjectivities? Uh, who was diable in classical fascism? The Jew, the gypsy, the communist, gays, disabled persons. Whoever was conceived of as an enemy of the state. In liberal democracies such as, democracies such as ours, we also have a certain form of diability. Asylum seekers and their children are diable. So uh, think about people who died in the Mediterranean Sea in Europe. Uh, they were conceived as being diable. In the COVID-19 pandemic, it's the elderly who are diable. People with pre-existing medical conditions who are diable. Uh, indigenous people, precarious workers are even diable. Prisoners, neighbors, LGBTQ members. When it comes to law enforcement, blacks are diable. So there's an interest in the concept of diability for me, which I want to relate back to 
fascist subjectivity, uh, the idea, so to say, when it comes to the COVID pandemic, of course, uh, who is diable for economic reasons? I mean, they clearly bring economic reasons up when they talk about the diability uh, of people in order to keep an American economy, an American capitalist economy going. We accept that certain people are diable, which is for me sort of a form of fascist uh, subjectivity. So this is one stream of thought, which is a more closer, directly related to thinking about the pandemic, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, I have a larger project, such as a theory of subjectivity, which is difficult uh, as a theoretical project because it's obviously so encompassing and many, so many people have talked about it uh, uh, to develop a theory of subjectivity. Uh, that's another project. And the third project is, indeed, what we pointed out throughout, a more systematic analysis to which degree epistemology, ethics, ontology, and aesthetics are actually entangled. So just to give you an example from aesthetics, arts-based arts research, I'm not sure if you're familiar with arts-based research. So there's several people now who have done arts-based research using the arts is a tool for doing research. There would be a more connection of aesthetics and epistemology. But I'm more, I'm more interested in, in a systematic understanding of the entanglement of, if you want to bring it down to epistemology and ethics, uh, to which degree epistemology is actually a, an ethical project. And people don't like to hear that, but I think you can show through evidence, for examples, uh, and I mentioned at the beginning the concept of objectivity, to which degree actually epistemological categories are also ethical categories. Mm -hmm. So that would be a third project. I really like the way that you bring in this concept of epistemology, which I think is often thought about as being reserved solely for philosophers or people, you know, sort of armchair philosophers who don't really think too much about practical issues. And you show the practical relevance of thinking about how do we construct knowledge who is impacted in these ways, and how can we do so in alternative ways that might incorporate the arts or the humanities, um, which, like we talked about, psychologists and psychiatrists, they're not always trained to think of, about issues in these ways. Um, but it does often seem, on the other hand, that a lot of programs, even academic programs, are moving in a more interdisciplinary way already. Um, yeah. So it seems like these are things that people would be more open to. In short, I really like the way that you can make terms like epistemology so concrete and relevant to the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.